Good morning, church. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 17 today, and that's page um, 944 in the Bibles around the room. So I'll read the scripture, and then when I'm done, you'll respond by saying, um, thanks be to God. And we respond that way because we are truly blessed and thankful that we get to listen to God's word today. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh you will die. But if by the spirit you put to, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But if you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba Father, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray, church. Father, we praise you. We are yours, Lord. And we thank you every day, God, that you forgive us and that you love us even when we are unlovable. We ask, God, that you remind us today that we are children of you, and that we bear your identity and we bear your spirit, Lord. We ask that you are with Kyle today as he preaches through your, your word, and that you open our hearts and our minds to receive your message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Casey. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us, I've, I've met a lot of new faces here today. Welcome to Living Stones. It is truly an honor to have you here. We are a church that just wants to follow God and to see God. And so you're welcome to join us in that journey um, wherever you're at. And I know that a lot of people have a lot of questions about God and the Bible. And our hope is that by opening up the Bible, some of those questions can be answered. So we are in a series we're calling the greatest chapter of the Bible because we're marching through the entire book of Romans and we find ourselves in Romans 8. So if you don't have a Bible open to Romans 8 right now, grab one of the ones around the room and uh, open it to Romans 8, which is on page 944 on those Bibles. Now, Dr. Rich Plass, the author of the book Relational Soul, he's a man who's been a pastor for several decades, and then also after he was retired as a pastor, he went and got his PhD, and he does professional psychology and counseling. 
he wrote in his book, the greatest longing of the human heart is to know that we belong. That is the greatest longing. Everything we do, our hearts have this goal in mind, to belong. Your heart's greatest desire is not really to be rich (laughs) or to get healthy or to lose weight or to be comfortable. At the end of all of it, your heart's greatest desire is to belong, to have a place, to be wanted, to know and be known. And it's not just to have a place and belong to people or things of this world. C.S. Lewis has the great quote where he said, if I find myself in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Because the truth is, and you know that this is true, the truth is is that we get a lot of these things. We sometimes even have great families and great success and great riches and it's, it's still not enough. Because we were made not just to belong to people, but to also belong to God. And this is the great news of the gospel. That because of Jesus Christ, we can. And in Jesus Christ, we do. Amen, church? The good news of the gospel is that though we have distanced ourselves from God through all sorts of rebellion to him, God in love sent his son to come and bring us home to pay for our sins so that we could be children of God. And if you believe in Jesus, you are a child of God. You belong to him. But how can we know? How can we know that this is really true? I mean, certainly, if the greatest desire of our heart is to belong to God, the greatest fear of our heart is that we don't. So how can we know? That's what this section of Romans 8 answers. And it's going to break down into three questions. How can we know that we belong to God? We have to ask the question first. Where is your mindset? Secondly, who has primary residence in your life? And thirdly, who's your daddy? (laughs) And all those are summarized, I think, by a main point that Paul is driving home, that it's this. God's kids live by God's spirit. You know that you belong to God when you live by his spirit. God's kids live by God's spirit. So let's let's take a look. Starting in verse 5, where's your mindset? I'm going to back it up to the beginning of of the the chapter, verse 1, so that we get the context. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For to live according to the flesh, if you live according to the flesh, you set your mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on things of the Spirit. What Paul is saying here in this passage is there's only two ways to live in this world. You're either living in the flesh or you're either living in the Spirit. It's one or the other. And that's kind of a, that's kind of a, 
a weird analogy, isn't it? What, what does it mean to live in the flesh? What does it mean to live in the spirit? It's, it's an illustration. Um, it, it means this. The spirit of God is the giver of life to all. And in the Old Testament, the same word for spirit is the same word for breath. And so if you think about, uh, if you came across a body without breath, you would say, well, that's just flesh. It's a corpse. It's dead. And that's what Paul's trying to say here. Life without God's spirit. Life without God is living according to the flesh. But life with God is living according to the spirit. Life without God is the flesh. Uh, another way to say that is uh, life in sin is flesh. Sin is simply life without God. In fact, some of your translations actually translate it like that. They say to, ha- to those who are dominated by the sinful nature set their mind on things of sin. So instead of it saying flesh, it says sinful nature. And what Paul is saying here is that it starts with the mind. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on things of the flesh. And those who live according to the spirit set their mind on things of the spirit. Your mindset matters, church. Your mindset matters. I mean, we know this. I played sports as a kid and I heard frequently from the sidelines, get your head in the game. (laughs) You'd be in class and the teacher would yell, pay attention. Because it's possible to be bodily somewhere, but to be in a totally different place. And your mindset influences how you live, right? So what does it mean to have a mind that is set on the flesh? To have a mind that's set on sin? It means three things. Well, first of all, it means sometimes that your mind is set on things that you know are bad. Perversion, greed, hatred, wickedness, rebellion. But sometimes to have a mindset on the flesh also means that your mind is set on good things, but you've made them ultimate things. See, sin is not just always doing what is bad. Sometimes sin is taking a good thing and making it a God thing in your life. A career, a relationship, a family, suburban living, peace at the expense of making sacrifice to serve others. You see, that is also to have your mind set on the flesh. And then thirdly, uh, to have your mind set on the flesh means to try to do religion without God. And listen, just because you're... People are are religious and you're sitting in church doesn't mean you're living with God. It doesn't mean that you have a mind set on the spirit. One of Jesus' greatest rebukes was to very religious people who were trying to live their way in obedience to God without him. This is what Michael Horton calls Christless Christianity. And it fills American churches. That's what it means to have your mind set on the flesh. But to have your mind set on the spirit is, is just the opposite. It's to think about God. It's when you have time, your, your mind drifts to him. You delight in him. You care about what he cares about. You love what he loves. You hate what he hates. You see how he was actively involved everywhere, all around you. You're consumed by him and his beauty and his words and his works. You know that someone is consumed with the spirit because that's all they can talk about is God. But you know that somebody is consumed with the flesh because all they can talk about is themselves. 
So where is your mindset? When we're asking, do I belong to God? We need to ask, where is my mindset? Is it on the flesh or is it on the spirit? Verse 6 says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. To set the mind on the flesh is death, church. Death. This is physical death. It's, it's eternal death. Because if you live your life without God now, it, it means that you don't want him ever. And you're going to be without him in eternity. But it's also death in life. Life will feel empty. Life will feel meaningless. Even though you may have all things going right for you in this world. Because to set your mind on the flesh is death. You can't live in God's world your way and expect to be happy. Expect to be fulfilled. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace, even in the worst of times. The true Christian can go through suffering and still have joy. Because their hope is in God. You see, many people come to me and they say, Pastor... I've been trying all this stuff and I just, I'm just not satisfied. I have no, no life. And I say, where's your mindset? Is it on yourself? Is it on the flesh or is it on God? Because those who have their mindset on the spirit delight in him. God's kids live by God's spirit. Verse seven, he continues, he said, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's kind of strong language. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When you're living in the flesh, you are hostile to God. When you're living in your sinful nature, you are hostile to God. You're not just indifferent to God. You're hostile to him. Because to say to the king of the universe, yeah, I don't really want to follow your ways. That's hostility. That does violence against his kingdom. You cannot live for God and have your mind set on the flesh. You cannot come to church and raise your hands and say your hallelujahs and truly be living for God, but have your mind set on things of rebellion against him. It's like the flesh and God are oil and water. It's like trying to run Apple products on a Microsoft computer. It just won't work. The tragic thing is many people do say, well, I'm a Christian, praise the Lord. But then they live most of their week as if they were the ruler of their own life. And by the way, I have so many friends who aren't Christians and they say, I'm not coming to church. Do you know the amount of Christians I know that say Jesus is Lord and then they just live in rebellion to him? Why would I want to serve him? And maybe some of you are are you're skeptical of Christianity for that very reason. Because you see people who call themselves Christians, but they live like they love themselves more than they love God. But that's not Christianity. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. This is what it means to have your mindset on the spirit. God's kids live by God's spirit. So let me ask you, take a moment of introflection. Where is your mindset today? Is it on the flesh, life without God, or is it on the spirit? Paul wrote this section for three purposes. First is assurance, second is warning, and third is an invitation. 
He wrote it to give an assurance, to say, brothers and sisters, do you find your mind thinking about God? Are you happy for him? Are you grateful for him? Are you pleased to know him? Then be assured you are God's child. Take heart. God is at work in your life. But he also wrote it to be a warning. Do you find your mind consumed with things of the flesh? Do you find your mind consumed with selfishness and rebellion to God? Be warned. Doesn't matter what you call yourself or what kind of necklace you wear, you may not belong to him. But it's also an invitation, isn't it? See, Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church knowing that he was getting up in some people's grill and they were going to read this and be like, oh, snap, he's talking about me. And Paul's saying, it's an invitation. Set your mind on the spirit. Isn't that great news about Christianity? It's not like get your life together and then God will visit you. It's right now. You can say it's by faith. You can set your mind on God by faith right now. And you're a Christian. You belong to him. That's all it takes is faith. It's a beautiful thing. You don't need to get your life together or have so many days of moral excellence before you can be one of God's kids. It's right now. If you set your mind on Christ, you can belong to him. So don't wait. Don't wait for tomorrow because tomorrow may never come. And the good thing about God is this, is that he wants you to have a mindset on him. So he wants to help you. I prayed this with my son yesterday. I said, Josiah, you can't change your mind on your own. You need God to help you. And he just started crying. He said, let's pray and ask God to help. And I don't know if it happened, but like, That's what we're praying for. And the cool thing is, you guys, is if you want to have this with God, you can ask God to help you right now. Don't wait. And listen, church, this is the reason why church on Sunday is so important. For 2,000 years, Christians have worshipped Jesus on Sunday because Jesus resurrected on Sunday and it's the first day of the week. Monday is not the first day of your week. Sunday is the first day of the week. And it's this thing where Christians for 2,000 years have said, we're going to start our week with getting our mindset on God and Jesus and his resurrection. We're going to get our mindset on him. And so that's why Sunday is so important. Now, listen, I know that there's a lot of pastors who want you to come to church so they can feel good about themselves. And I repent on behalf of all pastors for that. But that's not why church is important. Church is important so that we can get our minds set on God because without that regular rhythm, our minds are prone to wander. So we need to do it. And listen, the average American goes to church 1.2 times a month. No wonder the church in America has such little influence. No wonder the church in America is riddled with so much sin. It's because we need the rhythm to set our minds on him. So where is your mindset? God's kids have a mindset on God's spirit. Second question is, who has primary residence in your life? Look at verse nine. Paul says these assuring words to them. He, he kind of gave them a harsh warning in verse eight. He says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But then in nine, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. He's encouraging them. He's saying, listen, church, that's not who you are, though. Remember, he's reminding them of their identity. He's saying, remember, you have God's spirit in you. 
No, let's not rush past this. God's spirit dwells in you if you believe in his son. God's spirit. Like the spirit you read about in Genesis 1, 1 and 2 that hovered over the face of the deep as a chicken hovers over eggs before life happens. That spirit, the spirit of God dwells in you. The spirit who empowered Jesus' ministry to do all things like raise people from the dead and resurrect himself from the dead dwells in you. The spirit who holds all things together dwells in you. God's spirit dwells in you. Jesus himself said, if, if you want to be born, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. God's spirit must take up residence in your life and, and, and he must give you life where there was previously death. You have to be born again with God's spirit. This is the Christian teaching that when you become a Christian, you become a temple of the living God. That's crazy. Now, I understand that if you're new to the church or the Bible, you're like, yeah, pastor, this is where you lose me. This sounds way too hocus pocus, God living in us. That sounds too crazy. But let me just, let me just plead with you this, that just because something sounds crazy doesn't mean it's not true. Imagine 600 years ago before the industrial revolution and all the enlightenment and all that stuff. If you went to a farmer and said, hey, one day, you see that moon in the sky? We're going to land on it. <laughs> oh, yeah, and you'll be able to travel across the whole world in less than 24 hours. Yeah, in fact, you don't need to talk to somebody face-to-face. You'll be able to pick up these like weird cube things and push some buttons and then talk to them on the phone. And then if you really want to see them, you could like look at them and they'll be on the cube thing and you'll be able to talk to them and you'll be like face-to-face. They're going to call it FaceTime. The farmer 600 years ago would say, you're crazy. But just because it sounded crazy doesn't mean it wasn't true. See, 600 years ago, they were limited by his history and, and what had yet to happen in history so they couldn't understand. And in the same way, we're limited by our finite minds. And so sometimes we can't understand the mysteries of God, but it doesn't mean they're not true. The mystery of God is that God dwells with his people. This is why we call ourselves living stones. It's, it's an illustration that the Bible uses that God's people are God's temple, that Jesus is the foundation stone and each of us are a living stone that together make up the temple of God. God's spirit is with us right now. And he's with you when you leave this week if you're in Christ. The same spirit who resurrected Jesus from the grave. See, God is, and you might think, what, me? Little old me? Screwed up, jacked up, messed up me? Yeah, you. God is able to pick into the garbage bin, find trash, and make it his temple. Make it his home. So how can we know? I mean, this it sounds crazy. How can we know that it's true? You have to look at the evidence. And the evidence is that anybody who receives God's spirit doesn't stay the same. Amen? Amen. The greedy become generous. The selfish become servants. Perverts start to live in purity. Hard, angry people become soft and gentle. The faithless become faithful. Ask anybody who has truly received God's spirit and they'll say, things change. I don't know what it is, but things have changed. Often slowly, 
like an arthritic snail (laughs) and not always to perfection, but things change. That's the evidence. You might even be here because one of your friends has changed and you're like, I got to know what's going on. But that is what happens when somebody takes up residence in your life, especially if they're of supreme value, isn't it? That's why Paul says, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, if God's supreme person dwells in you, you will change. It always happens. I remember when I first got married, I lived in a small apartment with a roommate, but when I got married and Amanda moved in, things changed. First of all, she's like, the roommate, he's gone. <laughs> the dishes, they're going to be done. You're, we're going to like decorate the place. <laughs> like we're going to do laundry, not just wear stuff inside out, you know. <laughs> Things change when somebody of supreme importance takes up residence in your life. How much more should this be the case if it's God within us? That's why Paul goes on in the second part of verse 9. He says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You see, other religions are works-based religions. You have to do this to get to God. But Christianity is a residence-based religion. It's not initiated with what we do for God. It's initiated with God's residence within us. And then in verse 10 and 11, he says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Paul is encouraging struggling Christians here. He's like, are you struggling with sin? Do you know, like, are you struggling with the flesh right now? Be encouraged because the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Take heart. Do you understand the power that is in you? God's spirit dwells in you. And so in verse 12, Paul says, So then, my brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. He says, we are debtors. You become a debtor when somebody helps you out when you're helpless. Like think of it. Imagine that you committed a bunch of petty crimes and didn't pay the fines for them. So then you had a warrant out for your arrest and you got arrested and you went to jail. But then somebody paid your bail and then paid all your fines so you didn't have to stay there. You would become a debtor to them. Oh, but we've done a lot more than petty crimes against God, haven't we? Cosmic crimes against the king of the universe that don't just demand jail time, but demand eternal death. And what did he do? He came and paid the price. So the true Christian who has God's spirit, we know we're debtors to God. That's why we sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. He did everything for me when I was helpless. I did nothing. Therefore, I owe him everything. And he says, we're not debtors to the flesh. You're not debtors to sinful nature. That hasn't done jack diddly for your life. The flesh just lies to you and promises things that can't deliver and it only gives you death. 
But God's spirit has always told you truth and even takes up residence to help you out when you can't help yourself. We're debtors to the spirit. And so Paul says, so don't go on living according to the flesh because if you do that, you're going to die. But go on living according to the spirit. And by the spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. You see, the flesh is like a poisonous snake. The sinful nature that you have, the sin, the the temptation, it wants to destroy you. Now, if a poisonous snake got released into my home, I wouldn't go on being okay with its presence there. I wouldn't go on being like, wow, that's all right, you know? We got a poison, we got a black mamba just rolling around in our house. <laughs> Heck no. I would turn house upside down to find it so we could crush its head and get it out of there. I'd probably have my wife do it because I'm terrified of snakes that much. <laughs> but when you know the threat, when you see it for what it is, you don't go on living life like if it's okay to take up residence with you. And that's what happens when you have God's spirit dwelling in you. The word dwell is three times here in this little paragraph. God's spirit dwells in you. He shows you how destructive the flesh really is. And not just to you. See, if a snake came into my home, it's, it's a danger to me, but also all those around me. And that's how sin is. There's no such thing as private sin. It's a danger to you and to all those you're in community with. It's a danger to everybody. And so God, and the good news is that you don't have to crush the head of sin on your own. You can't. It says, by the spirit, we put to death the deeds of the flesh. By the spirit. Christianity is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Christianity is depend on the spirit and let him crush the head of the enemy. And if you do that, you will live. Because God's residence has taken up, and it is taken up residence in your life, God's spirit. So let me ask you a question. Do you belong to God? Has God's spirit taken up residence in your life? Does he dwell in you? Do you see change in your life? Sometimes change is really hard to see, isn't it? Like you watch your children grow up and you don't see change every day. But after several years, you're like, yeah, you changed. Do you see change as you look back over your life? Do you hate sin? Does it bother you that it's still in your heart? That's the sign of God's spirit. Many times people come to us as pastors and they're really struggling and they're really down and they say, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. Do I really belong to God? Man, I I just don't know if I'm really a Christian because I keep on doing these things. I keep on sinning and I hate it. And I just, it's, I put my arm around him and I'm saying, that's a good sign that God's spirit is in you. Because the fact that it tortures you, that it's there, the fact that you hate your sin is a good indicator that God's spirit is in you. When you have to worry is when you don't care anymore. When you have to worry is when you're like, yeah, This is there. I know I'm blatantly being disobedient to the Bible, who was written by the Spirit. You're like, yeah, I don't care. I'm going to live life my way. That's when you have to be scared. So do you hate sin? 
God's kids live by God's spirit. When God's spirit moves in, he gets primary residence, not sin. The spirit does. And then lastly, to give us assurance, we ask the question, who's your daddy? Verse 14 says this, for all who are led by God's spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Hallelujah. Abba, Father. All who are led by God's spirit are God's sons and daughters. That's beautiful and comforting, isn't it? God's spirit's in your life. You're one of God's kids. You see, the only, and it says all who are led by God's spirit. There's no extra qualifications here. Like you have to fit a certain tax bracket or you have to have a certain kind of past. Anybody can belong to God as one of his children if you're led by his spirit. You see, modern new ageism says that all people, it doesn't matter what you believe, is one of God's children. But the Bible here says only those who are led by God's spirit in Jesus Christ are God's children. And in verse 15, Paul assures them, he says, look, this spirit that we have in us, we haven't received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We've received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You see, before you're a Christian, before God's spirit takes up residence in your life, you kind of have this weird fear towards God. And because you think that he's, he's like a slave owner and he just wants to use and abuse you. you. You regard his commands as something to take away your freedoms. But when you're one of God's kids, you know that his commands are there to protect you, not to hurt you. That's the difference. So before we become Christians, our, our view of God is as slaves. But when we become Christians... We understand that we're sons. And to think as a son is to trust God. That's what it means to cry out to God, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic term. Uh, it's, it's a term that the closest equivalent that we have in English is daddy. It's an intimate term. It's a term of trust. And the translators throughout the ages have, in, have not translated. It was written in Greek. Paul himself even left the Aramaic term in there. Because it just is packed with so much meaning. God is our Abba, our daddy, the one we can trust even in the midst of hard times. Now, I know that that's hard for many of us in this room because you guys had horrible dads. A lot of people did. You had absent fathers, alcoholics, abusers. And it's hard to see God as your father, but by the spirit, you can see God as your Abba. You can see God as your Abba. And you know, I actually in some ways think that that's helpful by God's grace, that he gives us a whole nother category of God to think about, Abba. Because sometimes the word father or daddy registers a weird thing in our mind for those who've had bad fathers, but Abba registers a good sense of God as we see here in the scriptures. Abba. We belong to God. There's no more beautiful truth than that. In fact, Paul goes on in the next verse and he says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. This is the best news in the universe. 
It's all that we want fulfilled in Christ by his spirit. We are children of the living God. It says that the Holy Spirit, that one of the, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is he reminds us who's our daddy. He reminds us who's our Abba. He helps us to see that God is our loving father and that we can trust him. It says that the spirit bears witness. Can I get a witness? <laughs> a witness is somebody who says, I was there. This is true. This really happened. And the Holy Spirit of God is bearing witness in your heart right now. Before the foundations of the world, the spirit was there when God elected his children. When God created his people and God saw them run away, the spirit was there when, when God said, man, I don't desire the death of the wicked, but I desire that all my children will come running back to me. The spirit was there when Jesus was born. The spirit was there when Jesus lived on your behalf. The spirit was there when Jesus died for your sins. The spirit was there when he resurrected and ascended. And the spirit is there when he seals your heart so that you belong to God. And the spirit is saying, I was there and I'm bearing witness that these people are children of God. And as we just sang, it doesn't matter how you feel, the spirit will eventually remind you, you do belong to God. You do There's no deeper truth in all of the universe. We can belong to God. And he goes on in verse 17, he says, and if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Isn't that crazy? An heir is somebody who receives the blessings and possessions of their father. God doesn't just want you to belong to him. He wants to share all of his blessings of his kingdom with you. I mean, sometimes we look at rich people and say, must be nice to be their kid. Well, the world should look at Christians and say, must be nice to be God's kid. And this is not something that we've earned. It says that we've been adopted as sons. We've been adopted. And there's several families in our church who have adopted and it is not easy or clean. It's, it's heart-wrenching, messy, costly, and difficult. I was talking with Pastor Nathan Hornback, who uh, has recently adopted now two kids, and then another one uh, got dropped off to them recently. And here's how it went with them. Children were literally dropped off on their porch, and they were full of drugs because the parents were drug addicts. And so they took the kids in and they went through all the, the legal processes and the late nights and the, because the kids were hooked on meth, the, the detoxing of an infant screaming through the night for multiple weeks on end. And they went through all the legal fees and, and he said to me last week, standing right over there, he said, Kyle, do you know why I did it? Because I looked at them and I loved them. No other reason. That child didn't do anything for me couldn't. I looked at them and I loved them. And so we adopted them. And then on the week, a week before uh, Christmas happened, another baby got dropped off on their porch. And he says, I'm looking at this baby and I love him. That's what adoption is. God looks at us and loves us. And so when you understand how messy it is for God to adopt sinners, that's when you start to treasure being one of God's kids. I shared this with many of you, but 
a few weeks ago, there's an older man who has been coming to his church, our church for over a year now. He moved up here because he lost everything in a fire in California. And he also lost his wife. But a few weeks ago, he came up to me and he says, I know I lost everything. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he says, but I'm a child of God. You see, it's treasuring being one of God's kids that helps you to trust him when hard times come. And that's what Paul gets into in verse 17. He says, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, providing we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Listen, suffer. if you are one of God's kids and Jesus suffered, you're going to suffer too. You don't got to go looking for it. <laughs> but eventually it's going to come. But when you treasure being one of God's kids, you'll trust him in the midst of suffering. As Paul says, you'll be struck down, but you won't be destroyed. And that is the mark of belonging to God. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. God's kids live by God's spirit. I'll close with this. It's a story that I've told multiple times, but it's worth sharing again. There's a man named Horatio Spafford. He wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul. And he was a rich man who lived in Chicago, and he did a lot of great work for the the gospel work that was going on there. But then he lost everything in a fire. And shortly after he lost everything in a fire, he was supposed to head over to England to visit, I think, Charles Spurgeon and a few other great preachers. And uh, he sent his wife and daughters over before him on a boat. But then the boat sank. And then he received a letter that was written by his wife and it had two words and the words were saved alone. And it said that as he was trying to make his way over there, some people speculate that it was actually over the waters where the ship sank. As he was contemplating all the loss that he had, that's when he wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Because he knew that though he lost everything, he still had everything because he was one of God's kids. And as one of God's kids, he's an heir and co-heir with Christ. And so the song goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot that has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should strike, those trials should come, let the blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate And has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. That is the mark of being God's child. Lord, help us. We we just confess we are unable to change our mind. We, We confess our great need for you. And we pray that you would visit us with your spirit. And help us to have this kind of faith. We pray that you would get our eyes off of things of this earth and get them onto things of heaven and that you would set our minds on you, on the spirit and not the flesh. Help us, we pray. Amen.